Okay. Ready? We'll do a, let's do one, two, three, four, five, and then clap on six. Okay. But do but you gotta do the ands. One and two and three and four. That? Yes. And then we'll clap five and and clap on six. Yep. Okay, here we go. Ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Together, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, nope. here we go. Okay. One and two and three and four and five and Oh, I forgot to clap. God damn it, really? Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. With me, Bob Schneider, and your other host, Clint Wells. You're welcome. Well, welcome back to another episode of I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. How are you doing, Bob? I'm okay. Yeah, things feel okay today, oddly, in this crazy world. But yesterday, not okay. Right. Well, that's what... But today... Sure. Okay. Today, okay. Okay. Well, that's how it works, right? It's it's uh, it's day-to-day. Yeah. I feel like we're writing like a children's song about being okay. That's how it works. It's day-to-day. The problem with, the problem with being okay and not okay is your brain goes, oh, if you're not okay, you're like, I'm never going to be okay. Yeah, it's forever. It's forever. I know. I'm the same way. But I mean, obviously, if you've gotten to be my age, you you can tell yourself, "Hey, it's going to change," even though it feels like a lie when you tell yourself that. You tell yourself it's going to change and you're going to feel better. But part of you is like, "You're just lying to me. It's never going to." Because when you get in that place, there's no reasoning with your feelings. Yeah, you can't see it. You can't see the the possible future. I had a I had a girl I was writing with who's a bit younger, she's like 10 years younger than me, and she was going through her first like massive, like this relationship that's been going on for years and years ended. And it just sucks to sit across from someone because there's nothing you can do. But I did tell her, I was like, the only, here's the only, one of the only benefits of getting old is I've been around, I've been on that ride a few times. And here's what I can tell you that is just not even my opinion. It's a fact. Whether it's a month or six months or a year, you will be on a different side of this. You will feel differently. And in fact, this person that this person was com- considering <laughs> leaving the planet and killing themselves because of this relationship ending, I was like, there will be a day when you realize that you don't even have any feelings about that person. Right. And that it's just that's just true. That's just how time works. But when you're in that moment, that sounds like complete bullshit. You just can't see it. You can't see your way out of it. Dude, heartbreak hurts so bad. It's no joke. Speaking of heartbreak, I was just watching, uh, I guess it's been a week now, but I was watching the conclusion to Bachelor in Paradise. Do you watch those shows at all? <sighs> no, I can't imagine watching They're them. They're horrible, I and I don't recommend it. If you haven't been watching them or if you don't watch them, don't start. It's like, I feel like a heroin junkie who's like, hey, uh, if you haven't tried heroin, don't try it. But if you have tried it, and you can't stop like me with Bachelor in Paradise and Bachelor. I'm part of the Bachelor Nation. That's me. <laughs> I'm a I'm a bona fide card carrying member of of, Holy of shit. BN, and uh, I'm well, proud me, of it. Well, I mean, I think the show, a form of the show, has been on tel- television for what 15 years. Well, I only started watching it about four years ago. But okay. I'm I'm well, in. I, I, just... I don't watch Bachelorette because that shit's bullshit. But at Bachelor in Paradise. Yes, which and it's horrible, dude. Like, I'll I'll be yeah, sitting there you. with my wife, and we'll look at each other, going, "What are we? These people are horrible. 
They're not even horrible. They're just boring. Like, why are we watching these boring, uninteresting people have their boring, uninteresting relationships? And we can't figure it out. Now, do we turn the TV off? No, sometimes we'll fast forward through some boring shit that we know is going to be boring. But we're pretty much glued to every episode. Anyways, I found out who the new Bachelor was. And I'm like, fuck that guy. That guy's horrible. And my wife's like, oh, he's kind of cute. I'm like, fuck that guy. I don't like hearing my wife say some other dude's cute. How do you feel about it? Well, not great. My wife thinks Jason Momoa is fucking God's gift. What? I sent her. I, I mean, this is what a lovely husband I am. I sent her out on a on a night out alone to go see Aquaman so she could stare at him for 90 Ugh. minutes and... Here's what I do like, though. I like, you know, this thing's been going around that, like, Jason Momoa's got a dad bod now. He's kind of getting fat shamed a little right. bit. Guess how much I love a that. Lot. Oh, here's, boy. Here's... <laughs> yes. Put the pounds on, you fuck. We went and saw, uh, we, we went and saw Kings of Leon. Right. Another guy that my wife's just goo goo gaga for is the fucking drummer for Kings of Leon, this fuckhead. He's put on a couple LBs. Well, we I took her, I, again, loving husband, I got her tickets to the show because I've connected to some people in the Kings of Leon camp, and I took her, I had, a good, I had a good attitude, I had a few cocktails, and he's on the Jumbotron wearing a tight white shirt, and he put on some LBs, and I was just laugh every time he's on the Jumbotron, I was like, ribbing her, I was like, ooh. Here, all right, here's, here's what I like. When my wife sees somebody that looks identical to me, and she's like, ooh, that guy's hot. Then I'm like, you're right. He is hot because he looks identical to me. Now, when my wife looks at somebody like the new bachelor, who's polar opposite of everything that I am or will ever be, and she's like, ooh, that dude's fucking sexy. I'm like, go fuck yourself, bitch. (laughs) God damn it. Like, you know, if she was like looking at a dude that looked like you, and she's like, that guy's my cup of tea. You'd be like, yeah, he is your cup of tea, isn't he, baby? And then you guys are Guess how often that's happened. Zero times! How often that's... Yeah, we're, we're batting zero on but that. But you and me, I know this for a fact, because we're both thoughtful, caring people, and we're both scared to death of our wives. We would never do that, because we would understand that the only one, the only kind of women that we can say are even like mildly attractive, which, of course, we're lying about, are women that kind of resemble our wives. Or or are unthreatening. Right. <laughs> you know who I'm into, babe? You know who I think is just so darn attractive? A young Meryl Streep. <laughs> Meryl Streep from... No. Meryl Streep from Sophie's Choice is kind of just my dream boat. No, just Meryl Streep now. A six a 65-year-old Meryl Streep. Yeah, totally. Streep. Helen, yeah, a nice current Helen Mirren. Uh, sort of my cup of tea. No, I, I agree. I'm the same way. You know, my wife will... My wife's pretty cool about it, but she'll like go goo goo gaga for that Jason. She'll do shit in front of me where I'm like, "Hey, motherfucker, I'm right here." In ways that I would never do ever. Like I've never, I have some friends in marriages where the dude like in front of their wives would be like, "Ooh, she's hot." Ooh, that Angelina, jo- whatever it is, whoever it is, Mia Kunis is hot. I always try to play that cool because I'm, I'm practicing the fucking golden rule, and I'm doing unto others what I wish they would do to me because I do not like that either. Keep it to yourself. Well, I used to do it in the relationship I was in before this. Like, we, both me and my ex would be like, 
would check out like because she was kind of into girls too you know so we were both like oh that girl's hot that girl's hot Mm -hmm." and then i tried to do that with my wife like once or twice and she just like i don't know like stabbed me i think i think one time she just pulled out a knife and stabbed me like not in a part that would kill me but in a part where i had to have a surgery right and then i stopped doing it I just don't think it's that cool, and, and I don't think it has a lot to do with like relationship security or anything. It's just there, being in a relationship doesn't mean you stop having like private thoughts and proclivities for other people, but it's just not cool to share that with your spouse, in my opinion. It's uncool. Well, and the other thing that I did, which I don't do anymore, is I would say like, "Hey, all dudes are wired to like see." women and want to procreate with them that's just the way we are and she'd be like my dad's not that way and i'd be like of course your dad is that way he's just he just doesn't show you that that side of himself but he is that way and she's like no he's not no he's not and she and then finally i'm like all right well i know he is and then the other thing and then this is a funny thing for me and i don't know if you want to talk about it but she said her okay. dad's never farted in front of her. And I fart in front of my wife constantly. Like, if I have even the slightest inkling of a fart, I'm like, and I blessed it out. I'm not holding a fart back in my own house ever. Ever. I might do it the first, I might do it the first couple weeks of dating. And after that, if I have a fart, I'm farting. I've never farted in front of my wife, and I do not fart in front of my kid either. Oh, dude, I fart in front of my kid. I'll fart so hard and loud while my daughter's on my lap, and I'll be like, did you just make a popper? And she'll be like, no, Daddy, that was you. And I'll be like, yeah, it was. (laughs) My kid loves to fart, and I love blaming my kid's farts on my wife. Yeah. So we do fart yeah, humor quite yeah, often because yeah. I have a five-year-old girl and farting in toilets are just the funniest thing to her in the world. Right. But I keep it tight and right personally in that department. I've decided to keep it tight. Well, and my right. my wife. I've been I've been with my wife. I've been with my wife for ten years, and uh, I I just keep it chill. My wife's department. never never farted in front of me, and probably never will. And she barely poops. Like she barely poops. And every once in a while, you know, like every couple months, there'll be like a floater you know and they're like little tiny rabbit turds they're kind of cute like that's weird i'm sure she loves this part this episode dude holy shit i mean they're not i mean they're i don't know what what she's doing with that with i don't know how she's metabolizing her food but uh it's whatever the same thing that a rabbit does is what she does but we've argued about this for years too, and you're, where you're coming from philosophically is that you see the withholding of flatulence as a breakdown of true intimacy. Is that correct? Uh, if I'm not farting, uh, yeah, I'm trying to represent a person who doesn't fart. And I, what I'm about someone th- who just, just, just is polite about it? I mean, do you just like well, openly burp at dinner? I mean, there are things that the human body does that just simply aren't if polite. If I have to burp, I'm burping. Like, whatever I need to do, I'm going to do. Now, I will say this I will say this about my farts. Um, and maybe it's because I don't ever hold them in at all. They don't stink at all. Like, I will oh, bust out. Yeah, right. I'm, t- dude, ask my, ask my wife. I, I, I think it's because I don't let them linger. I think 
the longer you let them linger, the worse they are. Like my, you know. That's not how the science of farts I don't know work, how they dude. work, but all I know is that my, if I, I, I'm telling you, and every once in a while I'll have a silent fart. And those those have a little bit of smell to them, but my loud, boisterous farts that I do in the house don't stink at all. And and trust me, my wife smells everything, and she's uh, that's the only saving grace. Now, if they stunk, I might not do it. Like if it, if they were horror, if it was just the sound, it's just the sound that's the problem. Okay, but the smell of a fart has nothing to do with how long you hold it or how loud it is. It's it's about what you. It's a diet. What certain foods smell bad certain f- foods foods like beans make you fart more but they don't seem to have a smell right. if you're eating a lot of meat you'll fart a normal amount but it's, meat smells worse when you well, fart that's all it is so i don't know what you're eating but well uh, here's the, here's if you're eating a lot of legumes well here's the thing i don't do i don't drink at all so i don't have all that right. fermentation from like alcohol i think alcohol definitely makes your farts stink more that's my that's my uh, home home science. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> Bob's home science. I love this segment called Bob's home science. It's where I just Holy I shit. make up some facts at home here. It's where you just say things at home that that sound and feel correct. <laughs> uh, they do, and here's the thing: a lot of the time they're correct for some reason, no. and then sometimes no they're way. not correct at all. There's really no telling. <laughs> this could be 100% correct or it could be 100% wrong or somewhere in the middle. We don't know. We just make it up here at Bob's Home Science. Bob's Home Science, man. I mentioned last week that we were watching Orange is New Black and it was bumming me out. And I tried to watch Bill Burr and that kind of bummed me out too. And then my wife and I just sat and watched like five episodes in a row of Bob Ross. And dude, that guy is funny, oh, man. That I love him. You dipped into Bob Ross? I love Bob Ross. Man, he just, he goes on these interesting, he's always super positive, you know, we don't make mistakes, we make happy accidents, and he's very, he's very beautiful and calming, but man, he, I I was watching it last night, and I was like, I think Bob Ross did drugs before these episodes, because he's, he gets kind of far out. I know, I know a lot about Bob Ross, um, the thing I love about Bob Ross the most is that he is this, he comes, he, his persona is this, like, Oh, peaceful clouds. Look, let's put a little happy thing there. Oh, God bless you. But that got to be filled with rage, though. Well, here's the deal. He was a drill instructor in, like, yeah, he was in the army, yeah. And that's all he did was yell at people for years and years. And he said once he retired from the army, he was like, I will never. Uh, he like did a complete 180. He's like, I will never do that again. But dude, he will say some shit that is some. Dark, fucked up shit on that show, and he just slides it in between. Yeah, he slides. Yeah, it's, totally. It makes me laugh so hard. I wish I could think of an example, but man, he just says some dark well, shit. And he'll catch himself too, and he kind of his segues out of him are funny. Like he'll be like, uh, "This is my little fox squirrel." We'll put a little fox. He's like, "I keep a couple fox squirrels." You know, some people, some people where I live, they try to kill, they try to kill them and squash their heads. Anyway, we're gonna put some ochre here. <laughs> right. We're gonna put some. In- <laughs> yeah. He's like, "Ooh, let's not." He'll be like. Ooh, let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about that. We'll put, put a little happy little tree here, and they squash their heads, and they, but we don't want to talk about that. Just shit like that, oh, dude. Dude, I love that guy. Here's the other thing about that guy. Never sold a painting, and he would just give his paintings to the 
to pe- to when he would do the demonstrations, he would just give them to the to the uh, the studio where he was where he was filming. And man, I guarantee you those paintings are worth fucking hundreds of thousands of dollars now. Yeah. I was reading about it last night. So occasionally one will pop up like in the market or whatever and they go for some of them go for as high as 8 to 10,000. Oh, I, I would think they would be more than that. Man, the art world is so odd to me. You obviously know more about this cuz you make art, but the money in the art world is just staggering. Cuz you're right, in the art world $10,000 is nothing. It's nothing, dude. That's that's a real reason. Like if I saw a, I might buy a Bob Ross painting for 8 grand. I mean, that's a lot. That for me, that's as much as I'll ever pay for a piece of art. Um, so it would be, it would have, I don't know. I, I guarantee you if I paid $8,000 for a piece of Bob Ross art in 20 years, it'd be worth 10 times that. I mean, the art market is crazy. Yeah. I mean, what do you sell your art for? Um, I, it's pretty expensive. Uh, the, the collage work that I do, the original collage work is, you know, it starts, at like maybe $1,200 for something that may have taken me, you know, 30 minutes to make. So, But do you ever sell like the, yeah, I mean, you've you've kind of been into that collage stuff for a few years, but what about before that when like all the pencil drawing and all your weird like, uh, you, you were doing some really far out shit. Did, did you ever sell any of I that? Did. I did. I used to do these prints, uh, like in fine art and taglio prints that are made on copper plates it's a real laborious process, but then you end up with these beautiful, uh, they look like ink drawings, but, but they're actually made on copper plates. And, and I, I, I used to sell, I still sell those. You can get them. If, if you're interested in looking at them, you can go to flatbed.com or flatbedpress.com and take a look at them. But even those and their prints, uh, they're real expensive. I mean, they, they're a thousand dollars or $2,000. They're, they're expensive. Uh, so yeah, I mean, th- wait, flatbread press that that's not a thing. I just tried no, to no flatbed, not flatbread. Oh, <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Shit. Well, you know, we have for I think for a wedding gift you gave Isabel and I this big collagey thing of Charles Darwin because you were doing people's like you're doing like portraits right. kind of. And we have that in our living room, and uh, people come over here and write almost every day with me in my studio. And people ask about that all the time. And like, I wonder what that something like that would sell for if you were. If to sell I was going to sell that at a show, it'd probably be about four grand. Did you ever sell any of those? Uh yeah, I sold some some of those uh, in that that range. Doesn't Shipley have the Ted one? She does. Damn, they have a lot of artists on this website, dude. I'm trying to find you. There's a shit ton of artists. Uh, you just look under the artist link, and then it'll say Bob Schneider in there somewhere. So there's one guy named Bruce Lee Webb, but this looks like the cover of uh, Blood and Bones. Is he? What do you see? Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the guy who did the cover of Blood and Bones. Oh, okay, I thought that might have been you. Okay, so that was a different artist. Yeah, no. I, What's the connection with him? Uh, I saw his art at the Heights in Houston. Um, he had uh, his work hung up all over that club, and then I ended up buying a couple pieces, and then ended up meeting him, and then I commissioned him to do the cover of the new record or the last record. Yeah, I'm looking at these drawings now, man. These are crazy. I mean, they're awesome. They're so badass. They're they're like very otherworldly, and they all sort of seem like they're a part of a similar universe. You're talking about my drawings. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I pivoted to your stuff. Yeah, yeah. People love those um, drawings. And I I enjoyed I enjoyed making them, but I, uh, I, 
anything that's really laborious, I have a hard time with. My my favorite thing is coming up with the idea, coming up with the image, and then having completed it. Like that's the part that's interesting to me. The actual execution of it, I don't find very interesting. And um, so executing those drawings that you're looking at now takes a lot of time, takes tens, 20 hours to do one of those things. And I just don't want to spend that much time drawing. Like I like, so that's what I, when I started doing collage, I was like, oh, I can get the same results very quickly by using collage. So that's what I really enjoyed about it. I've felt that way writing songs before. A lot of people come over here and we're, we're trying to write a certain kind of song for a certain kind of thing. So and I live in a city where people are doing that every day, all day, forever. The competition here is just so crazy. So there's just always a pressure to like come up with something interesting or evocative, clever, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes we'll land on a premise for a song that's so good, and I'll think, oh, fuck, now we just have to write it. <laughs> like, like we spend all this time conceptually coming up with it, and then I'll get lazy and be like, well, now... Or we'll write a great chorus, and I'm like, oh, now we have to write verses for this fucking thing, you mm -hmm. know? I love the I love the final product and I love coming up with the idea of a song that might reach into someone's life. But similar to what you're saying about the laborious nature of drawing it, it's like, well, now we have to actually draw it and make it. Yeah, I mean, the the part that I love when it comes to art or any sort of creative endeavor is that adventure of there's nothing there and you're kind of going into a dark like a darkness inside you. And then you're just coming across something and you're like, oh, wow, look at that. And then once you've, once you've got it, then all the rest of it, the polishing, the cleaning it up, the presenting it, like that part, it's not that, that's the least interesting part. And then I like presenting it too. I love performing live, it's fun. But even when I'm performing, the same, I like to approach performing in the same way in that, I want to say something I've never said before. I want to play the song in a way that um, where I'm really feeling it. Like I don't, I just don't want to just go through the motions. So, and it's hard to do. It's hard to not just go through the motions when you're just playing like the same set, the same songs, the same way every night. Like it's really hard to get the magic that way. You you almost have to do new stuff that you haven't done before. And then if you just incorporate some new stuff into your set, then all of a sudden the whole set's new, if that makes sense. Yeah, if you yeah turn something around, open with something different, close with something different. Uh, because I was going to say, isn't there something too, like you have to take, and I don't mean you as in you, Bob, I mean the universal you as a performer. Because you and I are really invested in that magic, and it's really important to us to make sure that when we perform, we're in touch with that magic, blah, blah, blah. But there is a sense to where your audience, they may be seeing you for the the only time they're going to see you that right. year. This is the, or you haven't been in Seattle in two years, and they just want you to put on a good show. You know, like they, if you were to be playing the same set on a tour, they don't know the difference, and it still is magic for them. Oh yeah, like I do a lot of I do a lot of corporate gigs or private gigs or parties, birthday parties, weddings, whatever, and those people know exactly what they want to hear. They have a list of songs, and I'm like, man, you're paying me a lot of money. I'll play the list of songs that you want to hear. And when I play right. those, I get it. I'm like, it's so weird because I approach I approach playing live the same way a stand-up comedian 
I th- the way I think a stand-up comedian approaches things, even though it's absolutely opposite, which which is what I found. Because stand-up comedians learn a joke a certain way, and then they tell that joke the same way every night to a different audience, sometimes multiple times in a night. But they make it sound like they're telling it for the first time, but they're not. They're just reciting the same joke in the same way. And the best the best comedians do that really well. Um, but I, it's so weird. I'm like, I have to entertain myself for some reason. Like I'm, I'm I guess I'm selfish in that regard. It, I have to kind of impress myself and I can't impress myself by just performing the same trick that I've performed for years, even though I try to do a little bit of that when I play. No, life. I have the same deal. I've, I've had people tell me, I've had people recount stories to me about some bit I was doing or a riff I was doing that I can't even remember. And to them, it was so funny that it felt like something that was rehearsed. But really, I'm just sort of in those moments. You you and I have been there together, like delirious on a bus. The bumble up thing was kind of part of that. But where you're just riffing and trying to impress yourself and trying to make yourself laugh. And then when it happens, it's gone because you've moved on to the next thing, right? Well, there's two different types of humor. There's the kind of humor that's like discovery humor, like improv. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be that funny for it to to make you laugh because half of the fun is like, oh, there wasn't anything here. We just discovered this fun thing. We can laugh about it because it's exciting and it's unexpected. Now you have to take that. It's like, it's like writing a song on the spot. Like if I just, if, if I, you know, started writing a song, if I just make it rhyme, that's kind of good enough. Like that's good enough for people to go, oh, that was pretty cool. You made that song rhyme and he just made it up on the spot. But that's not good enough to listen to over and over again or go into the studio and record. And the guys who are the best at like stand-up comedy are the ones that take that improv moment and then really work it and turn it into this beautiful song. Absolutely. And then they do it in such a way and perform it in such a way that it still feels like they're telling the story for the first time. It's amazing. Right. It's amazing. Right. Uh, Louis C.K. used to do a great one. Um this is kind of before he blew up big. I remember I remember this is the first time I thought, oh shit, this guy is huge. As he was playing maybe like a 1,200 seat venue in Nashville, my wife took me for my 30th birthday. So this was six years ago. And uh, when he came out, everyone gave him a standing ovation. And I was like, oh shit, this guy's like, George. he's going to be George Carlin, you know, before. But, oh, the other great joke on that Chappelle's bit is he's like, Louis C.K. used to be a good friend of mine before he died in that masturbation accident of 2018. Mm. I thought that was pretty funny. But anyway... Uh, he did this whole story of his landlord and his. He made some money and he was living in a nice oh, yeah, building yeah. in New York. And, and his about. landlord thought he was a thought he was a right. bum. And dude, he tells this long story about pretending he didn't let him know that he was actually lived in the building. And and he got to the very end of this whole elaborate bit. He's like, but my favorite thing about this whole story is that none of it's right. true. And it was like, wow. Because he just takes you on this ride, and it felt so believable, but obviously it was a bit. You know what's so funny is that if you watch the actual special, he took that part out. Um, I know. It's called Oh My God, I think. Wasn't that the special from that? um, I don't remember what the special was called, but I was waiting for him to reveal that he had just made up that story, and he just left. He He took took it it out out because he realized, you and me are going to think that's interesting and maybe some of our i'm okay you're okay listeners because we have the smartest coolest listeners of any podcast around we're gonna well, we're gonna know how cool and meta that is but most dumbass motherfuckers are gonna be like whoa you made it up huh? wait a minute 
That ain't what? <laughs> He's trying to trick us. He's trying to trick us. Fuck that guy. Let's let's cut his balls off. Let's cut. Let me guess. That is your Manhattan <laughs> Upper West Side. That's accent. a that's a contributor to New Yorker. They cut <laughs> exactly. They cut his balls off. I didn't try to trick us. Hey, go. Let's fuck this Yankee up. Let's get him and tear his balls off. And listen, let me suck that dick while I do it. Let me hold on. Let me suck that dick before you cut it off. All right, let me. Mm, zip. All right, let's cut it off now. Hold on. Oh, let me. Uh, the let me. Hold on. The New Yorker. Hold, hold on and let me finish this uh, essay that I wrote on geopolitical politics for the New Yorker. Geopolitical politics. I was trying to think of something smart, dude. I can't think of anything <laughs> smart. I'm not smart. I was gonna. Say, you say geopolitical analysis. God damn it! You're so good. That dude, was good. You are amazing to me. I really, I admire how uh, verbose you are. Like, you can just put your thoughts together in such a, a, a clear, concise, beautifully worded way. And I'm like fucking George W. Bush. Like, I did, I drank <laughs> and did so many drugs that, like, my brain's just like a goddamn fucking popcorn machine. And I'm trying to like run a sentence through the fucking popper, and my brain's just like ping, 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 and I'm like, and then the geopolitical politics. <laughs> it's just, it's just <laughs> nothing's working. Uh, well, honestly, well, thank you so much, but I honestly feel the same way. I feel like I barely land almost every sentence I say. Like I do not prethink almost anything I say. I just let it well, ride. It comes out good, boy. Yeah, that boy come out real. What's good. funny though, dude? What's and I don't think what anybody realizes is uh, where you come from. Like when I've heard a couple conversations with you and your dad, and I'm like, how does this smart, thoughtful, educated dude come out of what you came out of? Which is, I'm not. It's mainly the accent because the accent of your family and the and where you come from is so thick and so strong, but it's more than the accent. It's sort of a whole real way of shutting down the thinking process really uh, in a way that's, that I don't know how you got out of that environment the way you have. Well, part, part of it is because I was equally mortified by it and wanted out and I was raised by records and TV. So, you know, I always saw other worlds in the... I mean, you know, I grew up in a really small world in Alabama. And the accent is the least of those problems. Mm. In every part of it, whether it was neighborhood communities, family stuff, school. I mean, my whole school was like that, dude. So, you know, if you're watching... If you're watching, you know, a Brian De Palma film or if you're listening to whatever it was for me, Pearl Jam Records or Michael Jackson Records, you just want to get the fuck out of there. Mm. And that's what happened, and also, we're out of motherfucking time. Another quick one. All right, we'll see you next time. Check out Clint's podcast, Mental Up Your Podcast. You'll love it if you love this one, and then check out my podcast, The Song Game. You can get them wherever you get your podcasts, on podcast or Spotify or wherever the fuck. We love you guys, and we hope to see you next week here on I'm Okay, You're Okay. Peace. Well, not okay, you're not okay. Peace. Peace. <laughs>